Hi, I'm Alan Alda, and I'm a guest on Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast. You got to listen to this. They made me laugh. I laughed like this. <laughs> This is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre. Our guest this week for our special Halloween episode is an actor, producer, writer, and the director of some of the most popular and successful horror and suspense films of the last four decades. He was a member of the famed actor studio and studied under the great Lee Strasberg before going on to appear in feature films, soap operas, and TV shows such as 77 Sunset Strip, Combat, Medical Center, The Incredible Hulk, and the miniseries The Winds of War and The Stand. But it's his work behind the camera that's brought him the most acclaim. Writing or writing and directing feature films such as The Beast Within, Class of 1984, Psycho 2, Cloak and Dagger, The Temp, Thinner, Fright Night, and the original Child's Play. In a career spanning over 50 years, he's worked with or shared the screen with performers such as Ingrid Bergman, Anthony Quinn, Roddy McDowell, Harrison Ford, Jack Warden, Brad Pitt, Anthony Perkins, and Stephen King, as well as former podcast guest Stephen Weber, Whoopi Goldberg, Bruce Stern, Mick Garris. Please welcome to the show the man responsible for unleashing Chucky onto the unsuspecting world, and a man who recently received thousands of congratulatory messages from people who thought he was playing the new Spider-Man. <laughs> a genuine master of horror, Tom Holland. Oh, thank you, Gilbert. Thank you, thank you very much. Welcome, and, Tom. And I can tell you, before I left the house, this is true, I I said something, well, I'm going to be interviewing Tom Holland today, and my nine-year-old son, Max, got very excited and then I said, "No, no, he's not Spider-Man." <laughs> <laughs> and, and I, and then he was basically like, "Ah, fuck him." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've never been able to use my real name. There's always been somebody else who had it first. 
terrible. Did you really get messages from people? It was I mean, they were it was tongue in cheek, right? People knew you weren't playing well, Spider Man. Some, somebody took took Spider Man and photoshopped my head on top of Spider Man, <laughs> and it went viral. That's great, you know. And I think at that point I was seventy years old, you know. So it was like, oh my God, they got an old man playing Spider Man. <laughs> I didn't. E- I didn't even know there was a there was a young actor named Tom Holland. There you go. <laughs> and we're both very thrilled to hear that you're a fan of the podcast. Oh, I am. I am. Well, I started. I I caught you, Gilbert. I don't know when I did Langoliers, the miniseries, the Stephen King miniseries. Sure. And I I I was casting. And I looked at uh, Balky. I looked at Bronson Pinchot. Yes, Bronson Pinchot. And I was looking at him in, in Beverly Hills Cop. And I don't know how, but I came across your scene with, with, with uh, Eddie Murphy. And you were, imp- I, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but we you did. were improvising. You were, you were, you were, and it was so alive. And, and Eddie Murphy looked like he was trying to catch up. <laughs> and, and you popped. I mean, you popped out as, as a character actor. And it stayed in my head. And and so, you know, so when this came up, I thought, oh, my goodness, I know the name. And I thought about it, and then I remembered. You, you were just terrific. Oh, you, should, you should be a character actor. I don't know why you're doing this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why are you doing this? <laughs> well, he's done a lot of character work in films. A well, fair, I, th- a I, think of, I, th- I think of it mainly as, I think of you, Gilbert, now mainly as a voice artist. But, yeah. you know, yeah, but you can act. Oh, thank you. No, 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 really. That, that, it's very, very hard to, to, to do improv, you know, on film and, and you know, and, and hold it together in a coherent manner that you can cut a scene, you know, in two minutes or whatever. Did you and Eddie improvise that entire scene? Uh, yeah. Just there was nothing on the page? There was something like, I've got these traffic tickets and I say, is there some way we can avoid this unpleasantness? I see. And then well, you, we just well, started doing it different each time. If you if you if you've got somebody who's who's, who's who can improvise, the groundlings, you know, whatever. The if you give them the basic situation, and then you let them go, but you give them a time limit, and if you if you can, you set up an objective, you know, something they have to do in the scene, like Gilbert. Has to you know has to bribe the cop and get out of the traffic ticket, and then then you know and the cop has a has a, has to say no or whatever, but you give them opposing, conflicting you know uh, uh, goals, and uh-huh. then you step back and let them go, and you you get what you get is a, you get a kind of freshness that comes out of the moment that you don't get with with scripted material. And it, it pops on the screen, especially if it's surrounded by scripted material. And that's what I saw in that scene in Beverly Hills Cop uh, two. 2, 3, 2. two. Okay. Yeah, 2. Okay. But I was looking at Bronson Pinchot. And Bronson, you know, Bronson is—Bronson can do that too, but he hasn't got your comedic turn particularly. How nice when a guest comes and flatters you, Gilbert. Uh, yeah, I, I just want you to talk about me for the rest of the interview. <laughs> well, how, did, how did you how did you start? Because somewhere when I because I, of course I looked you up Wikipedia or whatever. The you started just walking in blind at fifteen and doing stand up. Yes, yeah. First time I got on a comedy stage, I was fifteen, and I just started 
going to comedy clubs every night. Were you, were you the kid in the back of the class in the fourth grade that was cutting up all the time? No. You know what I find? That the kids who are the class clowns are the ones that come up to me after a show and say, I'm the funniest guy in my office. <laughs> Uh-huh. uh-huh. Yeah. Well, well, as long as you're talking about school, tell Tom the OS story because I think he's one of the few oh. one of the few people who appreciate it. Oh, okay. This is what a scary old movie uh pathetic kid I was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh one time, I think it was like in kindergarten or the first grade, <laughs> the teacher is playing a game with us saying I'll say some initials, and you say uh, famous people. And so, you know, M.M., and they'd say Mickey Mouse, and, you know. <laughs> I thought J- Marilyn Monroe, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. J.L., Jerry Lewis. And and then she goes, O.S., and me, a little kid, I jump up excitedly and go, Anselo Stevens. <laughs> where does that? Uh, yeah, where does it come from? Yeah, that's a good question. You, you don't know Gilbert, right? No, I don't know. But I just uh, well, well. How are you? How old are you in the sixth grade? You're maybe uh, in, the, in the sixth grade. Excuse me, in the first grade. You're maybe six, seven. Yeah. And you knew Anselo Stevens. I knew Anselo Stevens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh boy. Yeah, no. No, but anyway, 15's really 15 hit me because I got into the business in the summer of my 16th birthday, which means when I was 15, I got a job apprenticing at Bucks County Playhouse in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And that's how that's how I sort of got into this. Now, can I ask you what did you think the Langoliers look like in that TV movie? You know that that's not a that's not quite a fair question because <laughs> <laughs> well there was that was just at the beginning of CGI yeah mm-hmm. you know and you know I I know now you know in retrospect that it was uh, hokey and all the rest of it but the I got to tell you at the time it was breaking down barriers and trying to figure out how to do it with very very limited computer power. And also, naturally, the producers didn't want to pay. They didn't want to pay for it to render it. So the so it so it's set on top of the the the, the sixteen mil image. I shot it in sixteen mil. The, the producers were so cheap. But the show itself, the miniseries, I thought was just. I'm prejudiced, but I thought it was just terrific, and it had a terrific cast. And it was because the cast was so damn good, it it worked. And also, Stephen wrote a. Uh, Wrote a a, a, a mousetrap of a of 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 a, of a novella. I mean, you could really one scene did follow. The narrative was very very strong. When Stevens on, he's he's got the gift of narrative, you know. So and that was an example of it. I mean, if you if you that was in a in a collection of short stories, I think. But that was the one that was the grabber. You started to read it and you couldn't stop it because the opening hook was so strong. People woke up in an airplane. And everybody was gone except about 10 of them. And they were in mid-flight, and what the hell happened? And then they landed at an empty airport. Mm-hmm. And I was shooting that at uh, in Bangor because Stephen wanted to bring work into in the Maine. And it was in the height of the summer season <laughs> when it was just packed with crowds. And I had <laughs> to figure out how to shoot, you know, and 
and make it seem empty. I think at one point I had seven or eight scenes that weren't completed going at the same time. It was a production nightmare. But the, but the cast was just terrific. Oh, David, David Morris. Morris. Yeah, Dean Stockwell. Yeah. Yeah, Dean, well, Dean, you know, I mean, how can you get any more experience than that? He's great. Yeah, and, yeah. And, Bronson, and Bronson, who's, you know, who's multi-talented and totally mad, you know, uh, you know, turned in a hell of a job. So it was just everybody was good. And I'm not thinking of all the names now, but it was a terrific ensemble cast, I Dean, thought. Dean Stockwell was in Beverly Hills Cop 2. There you go. No kidding. Full yeah. circle. Well, he, I think he was in almost everything. Yes, he was. Oh, my the, God. Yes, yes, he was. Well, the boy with the green hair was, oh, what, course. like 19, 1948? Or, oh, I yeah. Mean, he was in the business yeah. early like you guys were. Well, he was even younger than us. Yeah, that's I mean, right. I talked to Roddy McDowell, and Roddy was Roddy did How Green Was My Valley at seven or eight years old. Something like that. Jeez. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, now, yeah. you've worked with him at least twice, Roddy McDowell. I worked, I, 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 he was in class of 84. Right. Yeah. Which and, you wrote. And that, yeah, and that was a, uh, that was that, uh, how do you say this polite? It echoed uh, 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 Asphalt Jungle. It was an updating of that. And Robbie's performance was just terrific. Roddy could move you. And, and he also, there was something adorable about Roddy. So when he came in, he realized what the, what the power was of, of Fright Night. And, and he was desperate to play uh, Peter Vincent. And then he came up with the image of, 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 of the lion from uh, the cowardly lion from Wizard of Oz. And, uh, well, he was, you know, he was both moving and funny and adorable. And if, if you look at Fright Night, the one that makes it go is Charlie Brewster, the teen who's, who sees the vampire next door chomping down on a girl. Mm-hmm. But, but the hero's, but he's on purpose during the entire thing. But the hero's journey is Peter Vincent, Roddy McDowell, because he's a fake and a phony and he's a coward. <laughs> and, I mean, you know, he's a ham actor who doesn't believe any of the movies that he made. I mean, I, I ended up having lunch one day with uh, Christopher Lee. Wow. And Christopher Lee could have been Roddy McDowell, except he had absolutely no sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us who none, you wa- none whatsoever, but he was the ham actor of, of all time. Of course. Well, tell us who you wanted for that part, for, for, uh, I wanted, for Peter Vincent. Wanted, I wanted Vincent Price, but, but Vincent, I mean, because I grew up with Vincent Price, sure. you know, and I wanted Vincent, but he, he, was, he, was, he was in failing health at that, at that time. And then Roddy had me to dinner at his house with Vincent Price and his wife, Coral Brown. And I, I, you know, I mean, I think to myself, if only I brought my autograph book. I mean, in so many places all my life, I think that. But I didn't because it seemed, you know, in bad taste. Sure. And so I sat down with, with Vincent Price, and all I wanted to talk about was the Roger Corman movies, and all he wanted to talk about was his new cookbook. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. It's and true. A, it's true. He and, was a gourmand. And the character is named Peter Vincent. Why? Well, for, uh, for, 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 for uh, uh, Vincent Price and Peter Cushing. There you go. They were the, they were my two favorite actors growing up and watching horror movies in the fifties. I love them both. Sure. Yeah. So yeah. Christopher Lee was full of himself. 
Oh, he was insufferable. I mean, I mean, I said it was at a party that was full of uh, uh, expats, British expats in in Hollywood, and I, 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 I also wanted to talk to him about you know about how great I thought he was and all those all those uh, Hammer films, uh-huh. and I couldn't get a word in edgewise <laughs> because he just finished playing Sauron in, in in Lord of the Rings. Yes, that sounds right. And all he wanted to do was talk about that, and I give him credit for that because he was he was forward looking, and he I don't know what he was then. He's probably in his eighties, you know. But he wasn't going to stop. But he really, he really was Peter Vincent without the humor. <laughs> and, and I heard he was such an egotist that when he put on like any monster makeup, he kept his toupee on. <laughs> I believe it. Like I believe in those it. mummy movies, they wrap the bandages over his toupee. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. I'm going to put Gil on the spot. You want to hear a pretty good Vincent Price impression, Tom? Yeah, sure. Go ahead, Gil. Yeah, I met him twice, and it was, you know, of course, exciting. One time I was a regular on uh, Thick of the Night, that Alan Thick talk show, and Mm -hmm. I went on and did a bit, and I was doing some imitations, and after I get off, I feel a large hand on my shoulder, and I turn around, and it's Vincent Price, and he goes, I loved your Peter Laurie imitation. <laughs> God, can you do Peter Laurie? Oh, yes. Danny. Do Peter yeah. Laurie. Okay. No, it was you who bandled it. You, your stupid attempt to buy it. Kevin found out how valuable it was. No wonder he had such an easy time stealing it. You bloated fathead. That's great. That's the Falcon. That's the Falcon, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, got it. Yes. Yeah, I was, I mean, the other one, the other great performance is M. Oh, yeah. Oh, incredible. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Incredible that, that is, performance. That's terrifying, you know, terrifying actually, it but, it, but heartbreaking at the same time. Absolutely. He was a brilliant actor. You know, we're talking about wonderful talents. Oh, yeah. These are the names and, that come up on this show all the time. Oh, and then years later, I run into Vincent Price, and I say, you probably don't remember me. We met on the Alan Thick show, and he said, oh, yes, that was a terrible show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I wonder, I, I, yeah, but, you know, I mean, you know, if you look at the earlier work back in the 50s before he got into genre, he was a hell of an actor. Oh, oh sure. he was. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I can't pull the names now, but he was doing noir. Well, he said Laura. Fi- yes, that's it. Yeah. That's it. In Laura, he has that line, uh, they say, oh, do you know a lot about music? And he goes, I don't know a lot about anything, but I know a little about practically everything. Uh Uh (laughs) Perfect. Uh But I think the other thing he really knew about besides cooking was art. Yes. 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 Yeah, yeah. Major collector. I like those Fibes movies. I mean, they're real. They're real. (laughs) Real tongue-in-cheek and real campy. Yeah, but they don't just, do that anymore, do they? They don't do them. Or Theater of Blood. You know, he, Theater, he just, Theater of Blood was terrific. Now you're back in the what? Late 60s? The, the 70s, even. 
Yeah. Even 70s He's theater just of having blood. the time of his life chewing the scenery, and you just can't take your eyes off him. That's where he goes around and kills the critics who give him you bad news. Yes. That's the one. Oh. <laughs> I felt that way. Yeah, Robert Morley. <laughs> felt that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Robert how Morley. Did, Frank, how did you learn so much about, how do you have, how can you hold it all? Have I don't you know, every, Tom. I'm a bit of a savant. I grew up, I'm a writer, so I grew up reading credits and reading writers' names and reading directors' names and just getting to, uh, just just familiarizing myself with it. I'm, I'm the kind of guy that'll get in bed with Leonard, Leonard Maltin's TV movie book, oh, which yes, has like 100,000 yes. movies in it, <laughs> and memorize the casts, which is just sick, I realize. But no, no, com- no. It comes I, in I, handy I, for a show like this. No, no, I used to, I used to be like that. I, I thought, in, in, my, in my ego, I thought that, in the very early '80s, I thought I'd seen every sound movie, mm-hmm. and I could name every—I could name not every, but I could name the actors in, in the movies. And we used to play a, the movie game. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd name a movie, and then you'd you have, you have to name an actor was, that was the starred in it. Right. And then the other person would have to name another movie that actor was in, and you you keep it going. Oh yeah. And, and I thought I was really the champ until I got the I got the psycho too, and I was playing with Tony Perkins. And Tony said, "Okay, enough of this. Let's go to cinematographers and composers." Oh. <laughs> and he knew him. Oh my he knew god! Him. Wow. Oh, yeah, tell us about he, Anthony Perkins. Oh God! You know, I mean, you know, you you wanna. Uh, he's a brilliant actor. He's he's probably. Maybe the smartest actor I ever met. I mean, he was, he was, it's, it's hard for me to tell, but he was borderline brilliant. But he also, he was also Norman. There was something tortured about him. Interesting. And since I know a bit about him, you know, I have, I have ideas of, I have a good idea of what it was, but I mean, that whole family's been dogged by tragedy. You know, his his wife was 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 a Berenson. Right. And she was on Oh, she was killed in nine eleven. That's yeah, right. Yeah, the first or second yeah. airplane. That's right. And and she left two boys yeah. and, 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 and and one of them's a filmmaker and very talented. So you know, I I I I, I try to be careful because you, you wanna be kind and yet at the same time you wanna dig the dirt. <laughs> but but he Tony I think, well, I know, he decided he didn't want to be gay, you know, and, and, and he, made, uh, definite, he made definite moves to go straight. And it looked to me, he, he had a very, very good relationship with his wife, and they were great with their kids. But somehow in that tumult, there was, there was this, this struggle, this pain, and it, and it came over. And all of the, also, let me tell you how smart he was. He was best friends with Stephen Sondheim. Oh, yeah, they wrote that wonderful movie for Herbert, awful, Herbert Ross. How, yeah, last, how awful about Sheila? Last of Sheila. Yeah, because I know but, he, they were into puzzles. But can you imagine playing a puzzle with Stephen Sondheim? I mean, I, you know, or, 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 or playing the trivia game with yeah. Stephen Sondheim? I mean, he so that's what, that's, what, that's what Tony was capable of. And he was... You know, I mean, his, Psycho 2 resuscitated his career. Mm-hmm. But he was, he was also very bitter that, that, that his, 
his career had been wrecked by Psycho 2. By, 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 not by Psycho 2, but by Psycho the original, by, by, by Norman. By Norman Bates, yeah. And, and, he, and he told me he had no idea. He'd flown back to New York for three or four days while they did the shower scene. He, he, he had no idea that, that he was creating such an indelible character. Wow. I'll also, I'll also say something else. I was, I don't know, Psycho 2 was, what, 1961, 60? Oh, you mean the first one, yeah. Six, yeah. Six, 60. 60, okay. And I, that was, that was a huge revelation to me. I, I had been a, 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 a film fanatic, but I didn't, I don't think I really understood what editing was. Mm-hmm. And then I saw Psycho, and all of a sudden I knew that they put together pieces of film to, to, to give the effect. And that was, that, was the, that was really stunning to me. That made me want to, want to be a filmmaker. And then the other film that affected me that way was Godard's uh, Breathless. Mm-hmm. I'd never seen jump cuts before, and that got me interested in the, you know, in the in the craft of, of filmmaking. So when you decided to, ta- you and Richard Franklin decided to tackle a Psycho Two, and I've heard you say you knew the critics were going to kill you. Oh, so you were between a rock and a hard place because you knew that, but you also knew you couldn't not do it. You couldn't not seize an opportunity like that. No, you had. I had to go for it, even if it was suicide. Now you got to got to remember the only film. Well, I'd had I had a big movie of the week, is what they called, and then called uh, Initiation of Sarah. Oh yeah, Gilbert and I were talking about that one last night. Okay, well that was like 1977, I think, and that was the first time. That was where we they threw the girl in a fountain, and she came out wearing a a T-shirt, and you could see her hard nipples, and oh. it was a scandal. Is that Morgan Hell Fairchild? Was, <laughs> uh, yeah, Morgan, Morgan Fairchild. It was, on, yeah. it, was on the, it was on the front cover of the Sunday L.A. Times in the calendar section, mm-hmm. which then was, you know, that and the trades were all the, all that you had for, for, the, for the business. And that had created quite a stir, and then I got— I got the Beast Within, which which was an original. There's a there's a there's a there was a book, a novel, but the writer had had a was in a divorce or had a nervous breakdown or something. And what Harvey Bernhardt had bought was the title, so all I had to work off was the, off of was the title. And I, you know, this this is where you get into to being a, to being a writer. I, it, I thought it was a terrific script, and it was the last movie that United Artists produced or released. After the after the cataclysm of Heaven's Gate. Oh yes. So so the Beast Within was the last gasp of of, of United Artists, and it had gone out and it, it had made money, but it got lost in in the disaster of Heaven's Gate. So after that, I you know I thought, well, my goodness, I finally have written the feature, and I couldn't get a job for a year. After Beast Within. And after the, Beast the Within. Beast Within has something in common with humanoids from the deep in that it's monster rape. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It yeah. starts a rape. It, it, start, it starts with a rape and it ends with a rape. Yes. I pulled I pulled the names for the cast from Love's, Lovecraft. Oh, that's interesting. But really, what that, what that movie, the, the underlying theme of that movie was the, the sins of the parents being visited on the children mm-hmm. because the father had been turned into a monster by... By you know by his by his by the people who you know locked him in the cellar and fed him human bodies for years, and the kid comes back because he's he, somehow the, the the spirit reaches out to him 
and he turns into the father. But I mean, it, it's also a, it's also a, you know, a, 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 it's also a riff on, uh, on love and, you know, and, and reaching, you know, uh, you know, sexuality and all of those things. Anyway, it had a lot of, it had a lot of uh, themes underneath it, and I mean, a, a lot of it got buried anyway. Very disturbing but movie. It's got one of the longest and most fun transformation scenes. Oh, when, well, when, the, when Michael's chained to the bed, the hospital bed, yes, and Billy, yes. comes, Billy comes out? Well, that's Philippe Mora. And Philippe, Philippe is a is a, is a is a human being and a dear friend. I mean, a, a wonderful human being and a dear friend, and very very sophisticated. And uh, uh, I think that uh, he thought that the whole movie was funnier than I thought it was. <laughs> so he, he played it for comedy. So it, you know that was at the moment when you were when effects were. Where really all they could do was inflate balloons underneath, you know, yes. uh, yeah. uh, latex. Yeah, which and I loved. Just, yeah, but it's yeah, still but he, it's still he, pretty terrifying. But he but he hung on it too long. He should have cut it more. He should have cut it, you know, you know, quicker. And there should have been more cuts in it because it it really could have been terrifying. And instead, it sort of slipped into silliness. But that's the writer talking. It it goes on forever, but it's yes. just <laughs> it's so much fun to watch. And since we're talking about great character actors, we have to mention an LQ Jones, RG Armstrong, Ronnie Cox, Don Gordon. It was oh. a terrific. It was it was Sam Peckinpah's cast yep. pulled out of the West and put into a horror movie in Mississippi. Yep. Now that kid, was he the son of Eleanor Powell? Yes, he was. Yes, good call, yes, he Gil. Was. <laughs> you impressed yes, me. He, yeah, see, yes, he was and is. This is the pathetic shit that we know. <laughs> Listen, well, when no, I hear when I, mean, I hear cicadas in, yeah. the, in the summer, I still think of that movie. Oh yeah, because they, 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 it's used as a device, as a recurring device. Well, it, it was to be. It was to be a visual metaphor for the transformation of the boy into the monster. Yep, and they didn't know how to do it because this was before CGI. And I said, go out and go to go get some of that natural, you know, uh, nature footage, you know, and, and where you see the cicadas dropping off the tree. Go into a close-up where they shuck their 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 shell and they turn into these beautiful creatures. You, for you, you and, know, you know the part that makes me crack up in the transformation scene when it's like about ten minutes into it, and he's changed, his head's blown up, his skin's fallen off. And then uh, his eyes are getting big, and one of the actors goes, "Oh my God!" And you go, "Well, isn't it a little too late for the Oh my God?" I'll give you another one. I thought, well, the, I thought, well, the monster's so so. And then I don't know. A couple of years ago, I saw the sketches, and I saw the 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 the, 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 the sculpture of that Rob Bottin had done, and the work was just beautiful. I mean, incredible. And what and what Philippe did was he slathered the the monster with so much blood you couldn't see that its tail work. <laughs> you know, so it's a movie that stays with you. I'll tell you. Well, you know, I mean, thank you. I mean, because they, they I, you know, all this is sort of a, I'm, I'm I'm acting acting humble, but all of this is sort of amazing. You know that that Frank because. I didn't have any sense that 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 this was happening to me or that people were remembering my movies. Of course. You know, so 
Of yeah, but the, but, the, but the culture wasn't there 20 years ago, Frank. It, yeah. It's all been the last 12, 15 years that it started to grow in popular culture. It's interesting. Might be oh, the internet has something to do with that. And I just remembered something, jumping back to Christopher Lee, that I've heard interviews where he talks about himself as being like, the number one World War II hero. Oh, where he's a Nazi, yes, he Nazi yeah. killer. Yes. Yeah, he said he was a Nazi killer. And, and was, he, was then, he using the third person? <laughs> and, and, yes. And then they spoke to some guy who was in the army with him, a general or whatever, and said, he was okay. He wasn't anything no, special. No. <laughs> yeah. a, great well. vil, a great on-screen villain, though. You can't beat oh, the, wicker, yes. the wicker man. <laughs> No, yeah. you got a point there. Oh, he, he played those creeps better than anybody. Well, I mean, there was there yeah. was there was there was an interesting Oliver Reed. Oliver Reed, another guy. I mean, you know, I mean, yeah, there was there was an interesting group there, you know, for for a few years in the fifties around Hammer. Absolutely. Well, Jimmy Sang, Jimmy Sangster, his him. work as a as a writer director, but as a writer mainly. I mean, they they turned him loose when 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 Hammer's. When the success of Psycho came out, Hammer said, well, we got to get into some psychological horror. And they got Jimmy Sangster, and he did five or six really interesting scripts. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast right after these important messages. Hey God, this is Pinky of Pinky and the Brain, and you're listening to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast. It's Gilbert and Frank's amazing colossal podcast. I just want to go back before we jump on, and we go all over the place here, Tom, as you see, with no rhyme or reason. But I want to talk. Yeah, I want yeah. to talk about H- uh, Hitchcock again. I want to talk about Psycho Two, and the and the challenge of it. And 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 you and Richard Franklin, you screened every Hitchcock picture before you guys got underway. Even R- the, even R- the silence. R- oh yeah, oh yeah, every one of them. I think we started with Murder. That might be Black the first mail. one. I can't Black remember. I can't remember. Murder? There's the Lodger. There's Blackmail. There's so, there's so many. Well, no, of them. This, is, this is this is pre-Lodger. Oh, okay. Lodger was the breakout, and then and and the guy who ran the studio, Gomon or whatever it was in London, thought it was terrible and kept it on the shelf for over a year. And Hitchcock was suicidal. I was lucky enough to work with Richard Franklin. Richard Franklin is is passed now, but Richard was. Richard thought, and with, with good reason, the two greatest directors were Hitchcock and John Ford. And he was equally knowledgeable about both. And when he, you know, he, he hired me to, 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 to write Psycho 2, he set me down and we went through every Hitchcock film, starting with The Silence all the way up to, I don't know what, uh, Cemetery Plot or Family whatever Plot, it was. yeah, the last one. Family Plot. Yeah. The the and and they weren't easy to we, get hold of in those days. It wasn't like no, now. What, no, what we did is because we had the access, we would go down to the screening room at Universal at the studio, I and we see. would go down there and we would sit there and we would watch them. Wow! And what he what he was doing 
was he was looking for the for visual set pieces, and he wanted to pull as many good ones as he could and put them in Psycho 2. And by visual set pieces, he meant those moments where the story moved forward with a minimum amount of dialogue, and it was all it was all filmmaking, you know. And it what it did is 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 by doing that, it was like getting a a graduate seminar in Hitchcock and how to make Hitchcock films. I mean, that's that's like it's influ- it, that experience has influenced me my entire life because you remember Hitchcock's uh, famous dictum about the difference between uh, between surprise or shock and suspense, and the difference is if somebody places the dynamite under the table, and and and. If you, the audience member, knows about it, it's suspense. If, uh, if you don't know about it and the table, the table explodes, that's surprise or shock. Well, that was, that was what, I, that's what I did in Child's Play. The, uh, you know, I came up with, I, I kept looking for some way to, to make that work. I wanted to do a killer doll movie. I wanted to do a killer doll movie because of uh, Trilogy of Terror. Oh, based but, on the Richard Matheson story, yeah. Oh boy, oh yeah. well, yeah. That that well, you know, I mean, that was a that was a, that's Dan Curtis. That was a great piece of, of filmmaking. Love Dan. Dan. We talk Cur- about Dan Curtis on this show a lot. Well, Dan Curtis was a was a very difficult guy. When I was doing when I was doing soaps in New York, I was working at ABC on Sixty Seventh Street, and Dan Curtis was a floor above me or two floors above me, and he he was starting Dark Shadows, mm-hmm. and then. The last job I professionally had as an actor was 1982's Winds of War, which Dan Curtis directed. And he didn't direct it. He didn't direct particularly. He shouted at you. <laughs> no, I mean, no, no, move over there. You know, I mean, you know, you know, I mean that's, that's what he was like. But he did, he, he did Trilogy of Terror, which I think were four short stories by Richard Matheson. And one of them is the Zumi doll, Prey, I think Prey. it was called. Was the name of the Karen story, yeah. Black. Yeah, the, yeah. Karen, Karen Black, Black right, yes. Right, right. And he, this is before, before Steadicams. And he took what they then called an Elmo or camera, a 16 mil camera, and he put it on roller skates. And it was about ankle high. And I, he, it, was, it, 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 was, it, it was very, it had, it had very, very small uh, uh, reels, you know, you know in maybe two minutes of film. And he used the roller skates and that little that little camera, and he chased after her at ankle height. And then he would cut to a close-up of, of, of the doll, which was a wooden figure about a foot and a half high. And he'd put it in front of the camera, and he'd shake it. And then he'd cut back, <laughs> then he'd cut back to the moving point of view. And it was absolutely terrifying. Yeah. He put sound behind it, too. But it was absolutely terrifying. And nobody had done that. And that's why... I wanted to do child's play, and then I had to figure out how to to construct those visual set pieces that I could make work with a moving point of view, because I knew if I ever got in trouble with with the doll, and since there was that that was you know an, an instant before CGI, if the doll didn't work in in real in front of the camera, the doll didn't work at all. I knew if I got in trouble, I could cut to a moving point of view, and that's what I did throughout that movie. But but the but what I took from Hitchcock about that was the opening hook, the opening scene, 
is 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 the the Lakeside Strangler, Brad Dourif, mm-hmm. putting his putting his, as he's dying, he puts his soul into that doll. So you know, as an audience member, that something is terribly wrong with that doll. And then poor Karen buys it as a birthday present from a bum for her son. And you as the audience member are sitting there and saying that doll is evil, but, but Karen and little Andy don't know that. That's suspense and that's a direct, that's because of, that's what, because of what I learned from, from Richard Franklin and, and, and writing Psycho 2 and looking at all the Hitchcock movies. But that's that scene where the batteries fall out. Yes, when she when she's about to throw the box in the trash. Mm-hmm. It's a great moment. It's a great moment in a horror film. It's a it's a moment you never forget. Okay, but that that is thank you. But that's the beginning. I timed it. That's the beginning of a, of a solid eight minute suspense sequence, and I keep I keep ratcheting it up. She comes back from the police station. She's in despair because mm-hmm. because everybody thinks her son's a murderer. Her little, her little, and the, and, and the, Alex Vincent was seven years old at the time, but you know the the boy's insane. He thinks his doll's alive. How ridiculous is that? That can't be true. And the so she goes to throw away the, the 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 box, and oh my God, the batteries fall out. Yes, you're right. It's heart stopping. It is. But, but then she goes in, and she picks up the doll, and she turns it over on its face down, and she takes. And she opens the battery compartment, and it's empty. And then, a la The Exorcist, the head does a 180. So it's staring up at her. and says, want to play or whatever. I can't remember now, yeah, but in like terror. That. It runs under the couch. Well, it not runs. She drops oh, it. She, that's right. She drops it and it scurries. It, yeah. it, it rolled under because I put, the, I put the couch and a piece of plywood and a piece of the, the rug at a 45-degree angle. So and then I I I I dutch the the camera. So when it hit the the the, the rug, it it goes under like like it's supernatural. But then she gets down on her on her knee, hands and knees, and slowly she lifts up the you know the the the, the couch, the the skirt of the couch, mm-hmm. and looks into the blackness underneath. And there's nothing more vulnerable than somebody with naked with a naked eye. You know, looking at, at at something that you know, you know it's the Lakeside Strangler now, and is looking and and, and it, it's looking at her like three inches away. She's as vulnerable as she could be, and instead, <laughs> it doesn't attack her. She pulls it out, and she lifts it in her in in her hands, and she says, you know, now she's you know now the she's starting to think well the. Her son's right. There's this, this doll is supernatural. Something's going on here. And she shakes the doll, but she can't get anything out of the doll. So then she takes and she lights the gas fireplace. And she threatens to throw the doll into it. And previous to that, I had used the good, a good guy voice, a voice with a, with a filter on it that made it sound doll-like. And for the first time, I went full, full ahead with Brad Dourif's voice. You dirty bitch, let me go! You know, and it was absolutely fucking terrifying. Absolutely. I mean, you know, and she and she drops it, and because the, the doll attacks her, it attacks her throat, it bites her, and she drops it, and then the 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 doll scurries out, and I shot the doll behind all these these pieces of furniture, the couch, and everything, so you couldn't see the puppeteers underneath. But the doll looks like it's moving at hundred miles an hour. Then she goes, she races down in the in the 
and you know, racing after the, the elevator, the, the birdcage elevator going down, comes out the front, looks up and down the street, and Chucky's gone. That's an eight-minute sequence. And it doesn't let you go in the whole third act is like that. That's Hitchcock. You know, so I mean, so, you know, that's, I learned, I learned so much of my suspense from, from, from being taken to school by Richard Franklin and, you know, about Hitchcock films. And I'm eternally grateful. And Richard was a very, very talented guy with a, with a huge chunk of the academic about him. I think he ended up teaching at, at, at the university in, in Australia. Didn't he visit Hitchcock? Wasn't he on the set of Topaz? He was. Yeah. He was. But this was before. It's, it's hard to explain now because everybody thinks that nobody thinks of things in their, in their historical perspective or at the moment in time in which they happened. The, nobody, when Richard was at USC, he invited Hitchcock down to the film department to talk. Nobody had ever done that. Wow. Hitchcock had never been asked before. That's crazy. I mean, yeah, so that, so that, and they became, you know, I mean, it, I don't know if friends is the right word, but, you know, certainly, you know, he was, he worshiped Hitchcock, and Hitchcock did invite him on Topaz. But I can, I can tell other stories. I knew Paul Newman, and Paul Newman said, Paul Newman said Torn Curtain was one of the worst experiences he had ever had as an actor. Because all Hitchcock said to him was, here, look over there, right over there, look there for three seconds, then turn your head and look over here. And that was all the direction he got from Hitchcock, that kind of thing. Because Hitchcock was doing bits and pieces that to cut, to put it together, uh, because he, he had all the storyboards right. that he'd put up. You know, in, in his, he, had a, he had a sweet uh, a cabana, whatever it's called, on the Universal lot. And he would work, and he would cut the film before he ever shot anything. And then once he did it, he stuck to it. So Newman, was, I mean, Newman resented just kind of being moved around like a prop. Yes, that yeah. you know, I mean that, but that goes to Hitchcock saying actors are cattle, right? You know, That's he what didn't really mean it. I don't think. Well, I mean, you can't you can't say that. I mean, Ingrid Bergman was was luminescent. Oh, there's great performances, and uh, oh, oh yeah. So I mean, so somehow. That didn't work that uh, way, but, but Olivia and but Rebecca. There you go. Yeah, there you go. Great but performances. Then, and, and before I forget, um, what was Brad Dorth like? I had used Brad in the Whoopi Goldberg movie *Fatal Beauty*, and if you go look at that. You'll see he's doing the Lakeshore Strangler there, too. <laughs> so, so, you know, so, so it, wasn't a very, it wasn't a very big reach. And, and think about it this way. I saw Brad recently. He sort of lost his sense of humor. But the, the, Brad is in just the opening scene of Child's Play. And after that, it's only when the doll comes alive in her hand and, and attacks her that his voice comes in and not the good guy voice. And he's made, he's been the voice of Chucky now through God knows how many sequels or whatever. And he's made a fortune. He only appeared as an actor in one scene in the original. Wow. Incredible. That, go, that and, goes back to the Norman Bates thing with Anthony Perkins. You never know that a job, you're just doing a job, that it's actually going to become this, this long-running iconic thing. Well, yes, but in, in Brad's case, Brad's, a, Brad's an Academy Award quality actor. Yeah. You know, he really is a hell of an actor. The... But the voice work there is, you know, that everybody will always think of him as being the voice of Chucky, I think. Although he always seems like he's slipping into a Jack Nicholson. 
as Chucky. Well, that, that, you ever see Wise Blood, the, the Houston picture? Yeah. He's great at yes. that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Terrific and also uh, Ragtime, and a small part in Ragtime. Good in everything. Once, once everything. and But it never – you can also see him in movies like Toby Hooper's Shocker, which isn't so good. The uh, – <laughs> You know, well, no, I mean, I'm, I'm, that's that's the bitchy part of me. But Toby's gone now. Toby was a dear friend, but I went to Toby's memorial, and they had it at the at the New Beverly, the theater uh, down here in Beverly oh, Drive. Sure, the sure. Tar- yeah, Tarantino owns one of my old ones. Okay, mine too. Yeah, and actually, it wasn't that well attended, and it wasn't that well attended because it was. It, it coincided with uh, Memorial Day weekend, I think. But, you know, those of us who, you know, who were in town and really loved him were, were there. Amanda Plummer was there. A lot of, a lot of the group that Toby had from, from Austin, and Toby used to call. I said, why the hell did you ever leave? And Toby said, well, when I was there, it was a dust spot. So he was getting out. But if, if you looked at Toby's filmography— at all the films he'd done, I don't want to. There was Texas Chainsaw stands out heads heads above all the rest. I mean, Texas Chainsaw is flat out brilliant, and it was it was it was it was breaking through to a to a new level of of, of horror and and graphic. Even though it's not that graphic now, but I mean, yeah, it's by just, today's standards. Didn't you have no, lunch but, at his house, Gilbert, Toby Hooper? Uh, you yes. You spent an afternoon with him? I, I went to Toby Hooper's house uh, basically <laughs> because my favorite Toby Hooper film is uh, Life Force, where Matilda May is a naked girl vampire. Mm-hmm. And, I see. And I That's went, why you went. And so Toby <laughs> put it up on the big screen. And, oh, and he told me... <laughs> Uh, little secret movie stuff that she started getting. <laughs> she had to shave to no. be the naked <laughs> female vampire, and she started getting very painful ingrown pubic hair. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> Shaving—that's that's too much information. So when you watch Life Force, that's something to think about. <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, well, I'll tell you, because I know, I know the Life Force and uh, Invaders from Mars, what he did for Golem Globus, were the high points of, you know, of really having a budget to work with. And so, you know, and then, you know, then it was it was more up and down. And, you know, I mean, it, it's just interesting. But, I mean, the 70s, which I, where I was trying to break through because I was an actor from I've been a member of SAG since 1961, and I acted all the way through. I was the lead in a pilot called The Young Lawyers, and it went to series, and they dropped me. And they they went with uh, Zalman King, and that was a mistake. And then they didn't have any, any ratings, and they desperately tried to bring back a, a, a good-looking guy in the second season. That didn't work either. But anyway, when that happened, I was at, I was— I'd already gone back to UCLA, and I was getting an education. And I'd always wanted to write, and I've, I've always wanted to write. I always wanted to write novels. I've been trying to write a novel since I was 13 or 14 years old, and I couldn't do it. 
And so, you know, in, in frustration, I became a screenwriter. And for however it works, I could do that. And uh, I was coming up as a screenwriter through the 70s, throughout the 70s. And, you know, it was a time of great self-destruction in Hollywood. There was, there was just so much snow around. I mean, it was, you know, I'm surprised anybody survived and got to 1980. And yet so many great films come, come out of that period, so many great American that, films. Because the studios were lost. Yeah. Because, they, 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 because the, the whole system had crashed. The inmates were and running they, the asylum, so to speak. Well, it, it re- that really took off in 68 with Easy Rider. Right. We had, Peter, talk, we had Peter here. Well, if you want to talk about an inmate, talk about uh, Dennis. Yeah. Yeah. Well, all those guys. Well, Peter seemed more sane to me than Dennis, but I don't know. But just the just the you know Rafelson and and uh, and 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 Schneider and Friedkin and, and Coppola and Hal Ashby and all of those guys. An I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a Renaissance time. period. Oh, it's about not, great. But I mean, I mean, I being there has to be one of the greatest movies I've ever seen. Wonderful. But but I don't know if anybody remembers it now. You know, I mean, Hal Ashby, I thought was God. There's a new documentary, I think, about Hal Ashby. Yes, I've yeah. read about it. I haven't yeah. seen it. Yeah, and all but the I mean, great. Jack Nicholson movies that came out in the 70s. Yeah, with the directors yeah. I just named. Yeah. yeah well, five, yeah. Easy, five Easy Pieces. Well, I forgot Polanski. Yeah. Oh, Last Detail. Last Detail and Five Great Easy films. Pieces and so many. Well, they were, King, they King were, of Marvin they were, Gardens. They were groping for a formula. And then you, you, still had, you still had some freedom when I came in through, through the 80s, but it started to shut down in the late 80s and in the early 90s. It, it certainly did. They killed the star system, and they went with tent poles. They didn't want to pay Arnold $20 million a movie anymore. Just one, one last question about, about Child's Play, uh, Tom. And by the way, there's a New York Magazine, a new issue. I don't know if you saw it. They rank the 100 scares that changed horror, and Child, Child's Play is right here on no the list. Kidding. Yeah, I didn't know. I yeah, didn't know. I'll send this to you. Thanks to the scene in which Chucky springs to life in the arms of Andy's mom, this movie did for dolls what Poltergeist did for clowns. The demon doll trope had existed before, but Chucky, voiced by the incomparable Brad Dourif, is its true peak. So, well, I did, yeah, that that was it was a breakout film on what I was trying to do technically. I mean, they they you'd had the you'd had the the, the Leprechaun movie. Uh, they'd had a couple of, of of movies with small people. But nobody had attempted to do what I did. Was Talking and Tina I, one of the inspirations, too, for this, well, the, ta- uh, the, twi- talk- the Twilight Zone episode? I think that Talking Tina was more of, a, of an inspiration for the guy who wrote the original script. Which I was see. Mancini, and it was called uh, Blood, oh, Blood Buddy. Buddies, yeah. But it has nothing to do with Child's Play. I was didn't use any of it. Telly Savalas. Telly Savalas. Yeah. Yeah. But that, that's a—those are— those are moral tales. If you if you look at what at, at what he was doing, they're Serling, you mean? Yeah, what yeah. Rod Serling was doing, they were they were they were shows that 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 had a point to prove, that had a they had a theme mm-hmm. that was that was that was stated even if it was oblique in the end. I mean, I think that's where the original idea for Langoliers came from. Oh, interesting. I mean, you know, we, well, we, we we were all we were all my generation were all in because there you had AIP and Hammer that was horror, and then you had EC Comics, 
and EC Comics were banned in 54 or 55. Absolutely. But but if you look at those, those are all, they're set up, you know, a, a couple of pages of, of mid-story and then a twist. And they're all, they're all moral tales too. And you see, you see the influence of EC Comics in so many of Stephen King's short stories. Yeah. Uh, well, you got to then, do three episodes of Tales from the Crypt yourself. That must have been a kick for a, a, a kid who grew up reading those. Well, yes, but that was why. I did the third one ever done. Uh, oh, um, the, uh, yeah. Killer Come Hack to Me, I think it was right, called. Yeah, Lover Come Hack to Me. Lover Come Hack, and that was Amanda Plummer. Right. She's brilliant. I got, do you want to talk about, about extraordinary actors? Mm-hmm. Amanda. The, yeah. uh, oh. But then I, the best one, I thought, was the one that I did, Four-Sided Triangle, that I did with Patricia Arquette. Uh-huh. And then this is why I love I love uh, Dick Donner. I, look, I, I want to praise Dick Donner. Not only does he have a brilliant filmography, but he's probably the, the most decent major director that I've ever met in my life. I mean, now maybe that's because he's, he was a fair amount older than I was, but he was giving, he was sweet, and he, he cast... He got me the job of splitting a pilot with him, which was Two Fisted Tales. Uh-huh. And he, yeah, and he did the half that he did was about Billy the Kid, and the half that I did was called uh, King of the Road. And I cast an unknown actor, and I cast him because the producer of the first year of 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 of, uh, of, uh, of Tales of the Crypt. Was an app was a, a Sterling producer named Bill Teitler, and I don't know what happened to him, but he did he did quality shows in that first year, and he pushed me to to, to look at this actor, and the actor was Brad Pitt. Oh, that's and right. So, yeah, so yes. Brad that and, and and I tried to get Brad an agent, and you know, and I asked I asked and I asked the agent I had at the time. He said, Ah, oh, no, name's not big enough. Oh, jeez. I mean, you know, oh, no, I got story. I'm filled with stories like that. I'd like to also the, say that Richard Donner is a wonderful podcast guest. Well, I mean, obviously I, you, I, saw, you saw him here. You, you heard well, him here. I, I, I listened to an hour and 36 minutes. He's the only guy. I walked from his office. And we went and had lunch at, at the commissary of Warner Brothers. And he couldn't, you couldn't get couldn't get across the, the, the through the through the through the sound stages without people saying, "Hi, hey, Dick. How are you, Dick?" You know, I mean, he was loved. Yes. I mean, I mean, if you listen to that podcast, he did an hour and thirty-six minutes. He never said anything bad about anybody. No. Do you know how extraordinary that is? <laughs> <laughs> to spend fifty years working yeah, in this even, town, even the Salkines, and he wants to say bad things about them. Well, no, the only the only one he dissed oh, a little oh, bit was oh, Spengler, yeah. No, it was Jackie Gleason. Oh, Gleason. Oh, that's Gleason. right. Yeah, he didn't he didn't like the other guy on Superman either. Oh, uh, who was that? The Pierre Spengler, the guy that was. Uh, oh, here's something. The guy that I think he had removed. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this. As a Twilight Zone fan. How come the original Twilight Zone stand up so well and they've made like a bunch of they've tried to bring back Twilight Zone a few times and and they never seem to work. Well, it's Rod Serling. Yeah. A missing ingredient. I mean, well, it's the it's the writing. I mean, it's somewhere at home I have 
I have uh, the last and never filmed season of Twilight Zone written by Rod Serling. And every one of them is a moral tale wrapped up as drama. But every one of them, you know, is a comment on, 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 on humanity, how we're great to each other or how we're terrible to each other. And you read, and I've, I've read, I don't know if it was true, but I read he was riding them on, on an airplane. I mean, you know, when he's flying back and forth between the coasts. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, and I know that one of the first people who helped me, Dick Berg, producer, I acted for him in a, in a uh, Chrysler Theater, which was a huge show. Oh, Bob Holmes Chrysler Theater. That's right. Probably around 65, 66, 67. I was in Bus Rally's Back in Town, which was also with Michael. My God, he passed away a couple of years ago. Anyway, the the Dick was in awe of Rod Serling, who lived just down the street from him. So I heard stories about Rod, and uh, they were all he was. He was a god among writers, you know. I mean, I mean, the rest of us are like pygmies, you know. And, and, and he was a giant. The, uh, you know, and I read the, I got a Roddy story for you. We're shooting Fright Night, and at that time I was smoking. And, I mean, I would walk around with a cup of coffee and a cigarette in my hand. And I never had it out because I was such a nervous wreck. <laughs> you know, my first movie to direct. Sure. And, and Roddy sidles up to me and said, that's, uh, that's what Rod Serling did all the time, uh, cigarettes and coffee. And he died of lung cancer. So, you know, I remember that, too. Roddy was looking out for you. Jeez. Well, Roddy. He was Roddy in that Night Gallery stopped. episode, of course, so. With Sir, yeah, well, with Roddy had stopped. Well, I'll give you another story. I would go over, I'd go over and see, and see Dick in his, in, his, in his palatial offices, you know, and he was like, you know, phenomenal director. <laughs> and I was still, I still wasn't able to kick the Jones, you know, with cigarettes. In fact, that's the hardest addiction I've ever had to deal with. But Dick would say, he'd look at me longingly as I took a drag of a cigarette. And he said, come on, come on, stand up. And he would take me into his closet. And in his closet, because he didn't want his wife or didn't want his wife to know, we'd pass the cigarette back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> true story, true story. Let me ask you a, a, one thing about Fright Night, too, that Gilbert will appreciate. Do I have this right, Tom? Is, the, is, is, there, a, uh, is there an Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein homage? Oh, there sure is. <laughs> there sure is. It's on, it's on the stairway. Yes, indeed. I mean, I mean that is, that's, that's a straight, that's almost a straight lift. The, you know, they shoot Billy Cole. Right. He, 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 they shoot him to the forehead. He goes down the stairway and lands up dead at the bottom. You know, Roddy and, 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 and Bill Ragsdale, you know, Charlie, think that they're finally rid of this, 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 this vampire helper. And they turn and they start up the stairway. And then behind them, we see over their shoulder, we see Billy Cole dead. Get up. And he starts up the stairway after them. And they're, everybody's looking towards the camera as they go up the stairway. And all of a sudden, Roddy and Bill and Charlie stop because they hear the steps creaking behind them. And they whirl. And there's Billy Cole coming towards them with a hole in his forehead and his hands outstretched <laughs> to strangle him. That's, that's Abbott and Costello meet right, Frank. It's Glenn Strange, right? Where he's, where he's sneaking up. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. On, on that's one, Ch- that's one of the funniest. Well, that's one of the funniest movies I ever saw. It's Gilbert's and favorite. Abbott, Abbott and Costello were. I mean, people looked. Abbott and Costello were great. Laurel and Hardy were great. Indeed. I mean, you know, the 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 the, the comedian who never changed, never uh, never changed the look in his face. Brilliant. Keaton, the stone face. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, the horror works in it too. That's what's so good yeah. about it. Works on yeah. both levels. Yeah, 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 yeah. We yeah. assume you're a fan of the Universal classics too, then, Tom, the James Whale stuff, and yes, all of it. Yeah, all of it. But I didn't. I, I, I really. A lot of my, a lot of the enthusiasm I had as a kid was for sci-fi. Uh-huh. That was a, that was a step before fantasy. I grew up on Heinlein and Asimov. Okay. And, you know all those the, the the boys the boys novels that that Heinlein wrote. Asimov wrote everything. He did. They think he wrote them in a week. You know the you know they they those were. You know those were just great. You know I'm, I'm pre-film school. You know. Right. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, yeah. I was, I, 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 I wanted so desperately to, from, I'm from, I'm from Highland, New York, which is across the Hudson Bridge from Poughkeepsie. Nobody in Highland, New York ever got out. A good <laughs> job in Highland, New York was working for the post office and driving the bus. I'm overstating it. Really, it became a bedroom community for IBM. Those were the white collar jobs. And then I spent a lot of time also in Austin. But my grandfather was 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 in Highland, and they my parents would send me up from Austin on the New York Central, and I'd spend the weekends there in Highland. Anyway, there was there was just there was there was no I, we didn't know anybody. I didn't know anybody. You so, didn't know anybody, did you, Gilbert? No, 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 no connection. No, nope. no connections either. So I mean, I don't know how we ever. How, <laughs> how well, you, I, you, know. you guys were you grew up on on uh, on film and 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 comic books and tales from the crypt and ran ran Asimov and you just were driven you were driven to do it. Yeah, but I didn't know how I be, I became an actor because I wanted to get into film, not because I wanted to be an actor. Oh, interesting. And well, I, got, I mean, I I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, no, I got a question for you here, Tom. Since we're talking about Roddy McDowell playing the horror host. I got a question for you from one of our previous guests who was a real-life horror host. Do you know Sven Gulli out of Chicago? Yes, of course, of course. <laughs> uh, a of friend course. of the show. Our friend Rich Koss. Yeah. And he says, please ask Tom. I heard a rumor that the effects people made a mistake on Fright Night and almost glued Evil Ed's mouth shut by accident. Stephen Jeffries. Well, I... <laughs> Is this true? <laughs> I, I'll have to. I'll have to ask Stephen. I'll have to ask just Stephen Jeffries about that. The, the 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 great one I remember is that I was blocking the scene with Charlie and Amanda in the in the basement, where she comes down in the flowing white dress and you know in the falsies that are that are that are making her zoftic, and and you know and she says you know Charlie. You promised, meaning you you promised to protect me, and you failed, and 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 that breaks Charlie down, and he steps forward and says, "Amy," and she turned away, and all I was going to do was have her turn back and attack him, but it was a Friday. It was it was a, I had a it was Friday, and I I could I saw all of a sudden that that was a huge scare, and I had, I had Steve Johnson, and maybe it was Randy Cook too, but it sure as hell was Steve. And I said, give me a shark's mouth. Give me a mouth that'll scare the hell out of every man in the audience. <laughs> and that was, that was where they created that mouth like almost like overnight. It's great. And, 
Yeah, and uh, I got to tell you that 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 image, and then and Steve said, "Well, the, you know, it's not a great piece. You'll never use it anywhere but this." Will you? And I said, "Of course not. Just give me the scare." And it turns out to be the image on the one sheet. Oh, great! Well, he has you know? he has like a Renfield quality that uh, that actor, almost like a Dwight Fry. You oh, know, yes. Stephen Jeffries yes. gets bitten in the alleyway. Well, that by, by Chris Sarandon. Yeah, the Ren the Renfrew character was really Billy Cole. Right, that's right. The helper. Right. Steve Stephen Jeffries, there was a everything in you're trying to do subtext with so much of this. It's 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 not what people are saying. It's not the literal meaning of the words. It's the emotion underneath it that you're trying to that you're trying to carry through. You know, the the uh Gilbert, when you when you when you were in that scene and Beverly and Cop Two, you know you're you're really trying to get out of a hard situation and you're you're trying to offer an oblique bribe, you know. But so it, it's not about one hand and the other, but it's a it's a clever way of of trying to get out of a difficult situation. So much there because because vampires are they're really any sex at all. And so the subtext beneath beneath Chris Sarandon, Jerry Dandridge, offering to to protect Stephen Jeffries, and you knew Stephen, he's called Evil Ed for God's sakes of school. You know he was the guy that was not popular, that everybody laughed at and thought was weird. And under the undercurrent of that is homosexuality, is gay. And at the time I I you know, I, I, I never know how much to say. The I didn't. Stephen is gay. I didn't know that, but I, I realized it. You know, when we were shooting, and so that was. I was trying to be in that at that moment in time. I was trying to be supportive of mm-hmm. of live and let live. You know, and that that read as subtext. And by the way, we're talking about how great McDowell is, but also Chris Sarandon, in in that movie, is ter- is just terrific. Chris Sarandon is another one. Chris Sarandon is, a, is an Academy Award quality actor. Wonderful. He, yeah, he won for what? For what? The the, the picture about the the bank with uh, oh, uh, uh, dog, dog day, day afternoon. afternoon, dog day afternoon. Great yeah, well, performance. Look, yeah, but good well, in a look, lo- good in Princess Bride. A lot of things. Well, I mean, they, yes, and he's never been he's never been as recognized as as he should have been either. I mean, I I know I've I know these people's careers. I mean, the the, the film that wiped. Chris out was lipstick, directed oh. by Michael. Directed by Michael Winner. Right, who directed your material? Yes, who directed Scream for Help, which was voted one of the worst movies of the eighties. <laughs> 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 no, they they ran it. They ran it down at the at the at the New Beverly as a comedy. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And I, I I I just got I just got ten copies from from Shout Factory and all their beneficence. Because they just released it as a, as a Blu-ray, so I've got ten copies which I will autograph for anybody who wants to go to my website, thterrorgo, <laughs> <laughs> and buy one. But I've only got ten. Gil- Gilbert and I will want one. Yes. Here's another question from a friend of yours, Mick Garris. Yeah, who, Mick, who was on this show with us, another master of horror. Please ask Tom when will he write his autobiography. Oh boy, I'm writing. <laughs> I'm just I'm just entering into the into into copy editing now on my first novel that I've that I'm getting published. It's really my fourth novel, but the first novel that I'm getting published called The Boy, and 
I don't know if I, I don't know if I could write my autobiography because I'll give you, I, I used to say that to Roddy. I, I'd listen to his stories and I'd say for please, 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 you, it's, it's, there's so much oral history, please write your autobiography. And Roddy said, Roddy kept saying, I can't. I really do know where the bodies are buried. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. Wow. He meant well, literally, but, huh? Well, well, but think about that because he went, to, he went to children's school with them. Yeah, he was in the studio system, right, as a child. He, but at, as a child, he, sure. was, he was a 20th and then at MGM. Yeah. And one of the most astounding uh, afternoons I ever spent was with him as they were closing down MGM. And as a PR gimmick, they had the, the lion being let out the gates by the Thalberg building. And Roddy took me through the studio, and he would point to this stage or that stage and tell me what movies had been made there. Wow. He remembered the, he'd 40s and into the from the 40s into the 50s. And then he would also point to the to the because they had the they had two rows of uh, of of, stu- of, uh, of wardrobe uh, actors uh, you know for the actors to change clothes and get makeup and all that and he would tell me who was having an affair with whom and what assignations and what 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 areas they'd men in, they'd men in <laughs> coming out of the coming out of the Thalberg building into the into the, in, onto the lot out the side door of the Thalberg building he pointed out where. Where, where Catherine Hepburn meant, meant space Spencer Tracy. Wow. You know, it, and he, he, he took me down into the tunnels that, that, that ran underneath, uh, underneath MGM, and they still had the nitrate prints down there. And they had the tunnels where they ran the electric and the gas through. And it was just phenomenal. And then we went to the, we went to the, to the, to the, to the, to the, to the building where they had the MGM library. So when you do the historical pictures, you could go there and research the clothes and the architecture. And I, it's one of the worst things in my life that the, the, the librarian was there and he was weeping because they were throwing, they were throwing everything into the bins because Gregorian could have cared less, you oh, know? It terrible. was all about, well, he kept buying and buying and reselling it and everything else. And every time he did, he stripped more and more of it away. The greatest studio and in Hollywood, the greatest studio probably we've ever known, you know, in terms of producing quality classical movies. Well, that's heartbreaking that they didn't, heartbreaking. Have, they didn't have any respect for the legacy and for— Well, Roddy, Roddy said to me, and he said it several times, he said, Hollywood has no history. And that's true. Yeah, I was it, shocked it, when, I moved, when I first moved there and I found out there was no Hollywood museum. There was no—I mean, there's the Walk of Fame, but there was no— there was no place where you could actually go and see the history collected. No, there isn't. And there one still place. isn't. And still there isn't. Still is. and, well, it's just like TV shows, classic TV, where they, like, burn the stuff to have room. Oh, the old Carson the shows where yeah. they just recorded over them. The Ernie Kovacs. Ernie Kovacs, too, yeah. All well, that they stuff were the is kinesc- lost. They were the, they were the kinescopes. Yeah, that's and all lost. Yes, and you're, Gilbert, you're talking I mean, a genius. Ernie Kovacs was a genius, too, in his time. You know, I mean, and that was that was just, just when I was becoming vaguely aware, you know. You're back around 1954, 5, 6. I heard... You know, I heard one of the workers called Ernie Kofak's wife and said, I, I think you better come over here right away. They're destroying all of his shows, if you could save any of them. 
Yeah. Well, so they called they called them kinescopes is what they yeah. called them. Yeah. Two last ones and uh, and we'll let you get out of here, Tom. Oh. I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. I've, I've talked nonstop, and nah. I really wanted to know. I wanted to know about you guys and about Gilbert too. That's we right. should work together sometime, <laughs> Gilbert. We should. What are you in New York, Tom? You come here from time uh, to time. I have from time to time, but I, I've 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 become since I well since I've started writing. I finally. I finally, after after fifty or sixty years, I'm finally writing novels. I'm finally ending up where I where I where I where I started. Where I I'm finally doing what I wanted to do at thirteen or fourteen. Good for you. And I fe- yeah, but Frank, I feel like I'm running out of time. This is this is the kind of stuff you know. You want to keep it light. You want to keep it hopeful for all the young people who are listening. We have no young people I'm, listening. I got, I got, I got, Except for that I, gentleman that I see there in the corner. Well, I've got a great one-liner for you. Go ahead. And it's, and it's that, that's Mark Miller. And I want to oh, give Mark, him a plug. Oh, Mark, thank you. Thank you for setting this up. Yeah, I want to, I want to, Mark Miller, I, I, I did an audio book. I narrate it and he wrote it. And it's called Hellraiser, The Toll. And it'll be, it'll be, it's a full cast and it's, it'll be available on Audible. Wonderful. But anyway, Mark Miller had the crest, had a great, great one-liner. Dorothy Parker, late 40s. Hollywood is the only place you can die of encouragement. Yes, I always love that one. That's oh, a, you know it? Yeah, well, it's, a, it's a great I'll give line. You, I'll give you another one from Stuart Stern, who was terribly, terribly important in my life. Stuart wrote, among other things— uh, Rebel Without a Cause? Rebel, Re, Rebel Without a Cause, yeah. yeah. And Stuart said, ah, you're, you're, you never lose your writing talent, but it sure can hide for a while. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> tell, tell, us about Anthony, tell us about Anthony Quinn and Ingrid Bergman, if you have anything. Well, Ingrid— Gilbert, Gilbert Ingrid, met Anthony Quinn, too. Well, Gilbert— and Ingrid was the real, to me, the real star. Uh-huh. And she was luminescent. Mm-hmm. Whatever it was, her face was like a mirror. Whatever she felt was there— on her face was reflected on her face. It was one of the most facile talents I have ever seen, and 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 I would ride to and from location with her, and she would regale me with these stories about people that I didn't know because I was too young. I think I was like 24, 23, 25. Anyway, you know about about singing bawdy songs with Gary Cooper when they were making in Spain uh, For Whom the Bells Toll. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, the, about working with Hitchcock. And I didn't really know who Hitchcock was then. Well, I knew who he was, but I didn't understand what she was talking about. She was talking about suspicion with Gary Cooper. And I'm, I'm oh, sitting Cat, there. Cary Grant. Cary Grant. Right. Yeah, Cary Grant. And, you know, I knew, she was wonderful. She was kind. And she was just on the edge of being matronly. You know, but she wasn't there yet. She was still hot. And she she, she was a major talent. Didn't you get to smooch her in a scene? My French kissed her. And then Tony comes up and he kills me. Right. And then <laughs> and then, then after after he called cut, Tony turns to him and said, you, you like that? Says furiously to Ingrid. He says, you really like that, didn't you? You like that kid, don't you? And, and he was jealous. And I didn't understand why. And then somebody told me, that they had had an affair when they did a movie of Darren Matt's The Visit. Wow. So, I mean, I didn't like Tony. You know, Tony was, was a huge star, but he was a small human being. 
So, you know, but he's another egomaniac. He wasn't as, he wasn't as obvious as, 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 as uh, Christopher Lee. But, but you know, there was, there, there was a, there was a, he could also be difficult, which is another way of saying nasty, you know? Uh-huh. uh-huh. So you tongue-kissed uh, Igor Bergman. Yeah, not bad. Yeah. 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 yeah that should, that yeah. should be somewhere in the epitaph. I, well, I was so impressed. I mean, do you know who, do you know who the, the stunt coordinator was on Walk in the Spring Rain? Try uh, hmm. Bruce Lee. How about that? Oh That's good. Oh, my God. That's cool. Yeah, Bruce Lee choreographed my fight scenes. That's cool. Oh, you can't yeah. get better than that. No, I'll, go, I'll, I'll tell you about that the next time we get together. Next time. And tell us about seeing the Beatles at Shea Stadium next time. <laughs> ah, that scared the hell out of me. That was, that was, we almost got mobbed. My, my, my wife and I, we weren't married at the time. Because yeah. I was a soap opera star, Gilbert. He was yes. mobbed at the Beatles concert because he was a star. He was recognized from a soap. <laughs> 19, 1966. Love it. And that's when I said, I don't know if I like this. <laughs> we'll do it again, Tom. Yeah. There's, so, there's well, so, many, so many other areas we didn't get to. Well, I, I thank you very much. And I think this is a terrific podcast you're doing. Thank you, man. Oh, thank you. We should you. tell our listeners that when we started, we, uh, uh, Tom was saying, I know so many of the people that you've had here. We were running names past him, like Richard Donner, like Peter Bogdanovich and Barry Levinson and Alan Arkish and Joe Dante and Roger Corman and, you said, and Bruce Dern. And you said you knew you had stories about all of them. About all of them. About all of them. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, one day. Of, well, I'm like, I'm like uh, Zellig or whoever the, the guy was in the Woody Allen yeah, movie. Zellig. Yeah, I've always been around, you know, but I, <laughs> I've never been important. But I was always there watching. So, you know, well, so I've, you're the perfect guest for this show. You're the perfect Halloween guest. And we have to thank Mark yeah. for making this happen. So, Mark Miller, thank you again. Absolutely. This was a pleasure. So I'm Gilbert Gottfried. This has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre. And unfortunately, I have to apologize. We couldn't get the Tom Holland from the Spider-Man pictures. <laughs> <laughs> so you gotta do what you can get you at the last do. minute. <laughs> I'll, th- I'll throw one more in there. I've got a I've got a hell I've got a Fright Night comic book that we just came out with. You can find it on my website, TH Terror Time, first edition. THTerrorTime.com. Right, and I thank both of you, Frank and Gilbert. And Gilbert, I'm sorry that, that I mean that we didn't get a chance to talk more. Next time. You, we'll, next time, yeah. We'll come to New York and we'll walk yeah. out to dinner. Okay. We'll you talk pay. about Shelly Winters. Oh my god. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, that'll be a whole episode. Yeah, that'll be a whole episode. Thank you, Mark. Yeah. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, fellas. Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast is produced by Dara Gottfried and Frank Santa Padre, with audio production by Frank Verderosa. Web and social media is handled by Mike McPadden, Greg Pear, and John Bradley Seals. Special audio contributions by John Beach. Special thanks to John Fodiatis, John Murray, and Paul Rayburn. 